Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. Is the Great Reset a thing? Well, the Trudeau government will call it a conspiracy theory. The problem is it's all laid out in black and white in the UN's own documentation. How much is this new carbon tax really going to cost you? Well, let's just put it to you this way. There is a reason BC no longer calls it revenue neutral. And does man's best friend have the secret smell to sniffing out COVID? This could be a game changer, and it could all be within our man's best friend. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. You understand. There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. I said we would be ready, and we are. Make no mistake, there's a long road ahead of us, but what this represents is hope and proof that this pandemic will come to an end. That or we'll lose our marbles. Alex Pearson with you on this, yes, it is a historic December 14th. That's what it is. We've got to take the good news when we can get it, so we will take it. I hope you all had a great weekend, a chance to uh, recharge recharge as we get into the home stretch i just realized this weekend that we're actually heading into the final stretch and normally you know we'd have all these parties and celebrations and all this good food would be coming to the office but none of that's happening this year so it just doesn't even feel like christmas and then it dawned on me oh my god we got 10 days till the big man shows up and uh the kids are out this friday yikes which means two weeks of bouncing off the wall with nothing to do, nowhere to go, and zero relaxation for burned out parents. So there you go, it starts this Friday. But safe to say, I think um, we can all agree that the best gift for getting this year is this vaccine, because today I think marks the day we start taking our lives back. And I know there's lots who tell me that they won't touch this thing, and uh, that's your choice. I do hope that time will change this, because this is freedom. And um, it's a slow, slow crawl to freedom, but it's freedom from the stress, the uncertainty, these ridiculous, nonsensical lockdowns that are driving people nuts and a lot of people out of business. And freedom, I think, from bad governing at a number of different levels. Because this pandemic has been so, so costly, so severely painful, not just to our physical health, but our mental health, our you know, economy's health. And you know, now we've got the threat of all these weird, reckless policies built on ideology that will serve very, very few and hurt a lot. But uh, you've seen it throughout the day. The first Canadian who is, uh, she got poked this morning, is a personal support worker who has been working in long-term care for a long time and, and watched 19 people die of COVID. I'm feeling okay. Yeah. And I'm so grateful to be the first personal support worker to take this vaccine. We have been waiting for this for so long. And I'm, I'm here now and I'm so thankful. Yes, her name, Anita Quidangan. And uh, she got one of the first of two shots and a place in the history books. Not bad. Good for you. And she'll be freed, hopefully, from COVID. Hopefully. I just don't know for how long. We don't know for how long. There are so many unknowns about this vaccine and the others that we're going to be using. And so I know there's a whole lot of excitement about all the stuff we're seeing and the pictures you're seeing. But what we actually need is clarity. Like, how long is this going to take? Because it's not at all clear. 
And yes, the Trudeau government got some vaccines ahead of schedule, but they really need to manage expectations because the goal, according to the Trudeau government, is to get 30,000 doses this week and then hopefully 30,000 next week. But, you know, that's all we got. Hope. And the procurement minister could not say when the remaining 200, um, you know, thousand-ish vaccines will arrive or if they'll actually arrive before the end of December because it's still a deal being negotiated. And, you know, photo ops will take them so far. And it's going to take Canadians only so far because the excitement is going to reel wear thin the longer we're left in the dark. So, you know, I think the government has to level with Canadians on where and when we're going to be vaccinated because it could take, as we had heard last week, up to a year. And if that's the case, that is a real tough pill to swallow, especially for those who are, you know, whose lives and livelihoods are being destroyed. And the Americans, our neighbors, have a much, much clearer picture of what's to come. And they also started vaccinating today, but they're going to be getting 20 million vaccinations by the end of December. And they expect 120 million people will be vaccinated before April, maybe even sooner. And that's going to be hard to watch. You know, you're going to be watching our neighbors opening up their economy, going to concerts, going to movies, getting to the beach, going back to normal. And we're going to be still wearing masks, living with lockdowns and restrictions that, you know, not necessarily driven by data. And so the longer this goes on, the angrier and I think the more distrustful people are going to get and the more divided this country will be. So yes, we're excited. It's a good day. But Dr. Bogosh states, you know, the toughest part is still ahead. 2020 has been an ugly year. And even 2021, I think the first part of 2021 is still going to be pretty tough as well. I mean, like you look at what's happening in the Toronto hospitals and the Peel hospitals, like it's, it's not pretty by any means. But if, you, if we can keep this under control, if we can lower transmission rates in the community, we'll buy us time to really ramp up these vaccine programs. And I think as we roll through 2021, things are just going to get better and better and better. I'd say they can't get worse, but <laughs> it's 2020. So I'm going to temper my hopes until I see that steady flow of millions of vaccines coming into this country. You know, when we see our elderly um, surrounded by the loved ones and we see businesses getting back on their, their feet and then the moment we can actually throw the masks in the garbage because I don't feel like keeping my collection. I'm not attached to it. I don't like it. I don't want it. And I can never, I cannot wait to that day that I never have to put one on again. That is the day we celebrate. But I had to go out this weekend to pick up something curbside. I went to Markham. What a zoo. Oh, what a zoo. And curbside takes a long time. I mean, I'm determined to buy local, but it, it took an hour to pick up one thing. And I think what struck me the most was first of all, it was packed, just packed, people everywhere. Uh, but how much merchandise these stores are going to be stuck with? And I was at the Sporting Life, and, you know, like like other big retailers, they just can't push out winter goods. They just can't get it out the door because there's not enough people allowed in the store. And if you're buying something like skis or boots or winter equipment, you want to be able to try it on. And as, you know, after yesterday, they can't do that. So a lot of, a lot of people are going to give that a pass. And, and curbside will not work for Boxing Day. Can you imagine how big the crowds would be on Boxing Day, all waiting for curbside? I mean, good luck with that. So then what that means for these stores is that they're going to be left with massive, massive amounts of winter stock that they can't move in order to buy spring stock. And if they can't move it, it has a ripple effect all the way down the line from, you know, the store to the wholesalers, the salespeople, manufacturers. And I, I really, really just feel for them. So we'll see, I think, the, uh, the results of that soon enough. 
But then I read Mayor Tory and the mayors from across the DTHA, all 11 of them discussing this issue moving forward. And now they're asking the province, you know, give stores more of a heads up before shutting down. Well, good idea. I mean, they're closed now. So it comes a little late. But they're also suggesting moving forward, they want to ask the province, you know, consider changing restrictions in the new year for small businesses so they can get, you know, greater fairness. Again, a little late for that. I mean, once the holidays are over, people don't spend. And when no one spends, all these stores go broke. So a lot of them will fold and because they won't be able to push that merchandise out. So I, all great, but it just comes way too little, way too late. And these restrictions have just been um, so consequential. I just don't know why they didn't think about that sooner. All right, great to have you here on this Monday. So who raises taxes during a global recession in the second wave of a pandemic? Well, that would be a government seizing the moment. That's who. And this sudden reversal on the carbon tax is a 240% increase to a tax that Catherine McKenna swore up and down last June she was not raising. And this is a policy that will be easy to sell in urban centers like Toronto and Vancouver, where everyone's been convinced it's what we must do to save the planet. But it is a $15 billion tax grab that was not included or mentioned in last week's fiscal update. And it'll be sold as a rebate for families who can make money if they just change their fossil fuel habits. But, you know, I have yet in my many years in this country to see a tax where people make money. So if this thing works, then it would be a first. But I have a feeling that's why the province of BC is no longer calling it revenue neutrality. Chris Sims is the BC Canadian Taxpayer Federation Executive Director. She joins us now. Good to have you, Chris. Thank you so much. I wanted you on because I know you know this issue probably better than than most um, to break it down because this thing is all being pushed as don't worry, you get the money back. That's a real head-scratcher, right? And as you said, uh, I've been in the business a long time in journalism. I've yet to see a tax that actually makes people money. And if that worked, as my friend Aaron Woodrick said, well, you know, hell, make it a million dollars and we'll all be rich. <laughs> like, if that actually works, then that kind of thinking would make sense here. But it doesn't. I can break it down for you here with BC as an example. And it's important to use BC as an example because Justin Trudeau is using BC as a template for the carbon tax. So back in 2008, when they hatched the carbon tax out here, politicians told us a billion things. They said that it would be revenue neutral, uh, that the money would all go into creating a plethora of affordable alternative energies that we could all use. They said that it was... Like the ones in Ontario? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, pardon my sarcasm. Yeah. Um, they said it would stop at $30 a ton. And this is the kicker. They said that it would reduce emissions. Fast forward today, none of that is true. Our emissions are going up. They've gone up 10% in the last three years. They've gone up in five of the last seven years. It's already $40 a ton. The rebates evaporate by the time your family make $65,000 a year combined to person working family, you get nothing. And it's no longer even called revenue neutral. It wasn't that for a long time anyway, but they even removed the label. It all goes into general revenue. So since Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is using BC as a template, buckle up, you guys. Right. BC, though, would be exempt from this and other provinces that have adopted some kind of carbon plan, correct? So far, 
Uh, but our carbon tax right now is higher than the federal carbon tax because our politicians want to be, quote, carbon leaders, they said. So ours is $40 a ton right now. That means that it costs you 8.2 cents per liter for gasoline here in B.C., whereas the federal one right now is 30 cents per ton and you pay 6.6 per liter. People get confused because it is it is confusing with all the numbers and the way it's explained. But the bottom line is when you're putting on costs to things that we have to use, it's not like we have a, a choice in this country because we do happen to be cold uh, seven months out of the year. So we, we have to use things like heating oil and because we're so geographically enormous – Yes, we need transportation and we need cars. And instead of offering up what I think would be the smarter idea, which is if you want me to change my habits, build me transit that works, um, they're, they're selling this as the answer. But again, it's a tax and it's just going to drive the prices up on everything from food, uh, fuel, heating tax, all those things. Absolutely. Uh, that's why a lot of people say the carbon tax is a tax on everything, uh, because it is. To give you an example, a real world example, uh, right now, uh, the current carbon tax here in BC, based on 8.2 cents per liter, I encourage everybody, look at the capacity on your fuel tank, do the math, and then multiply it by how often you fill up your car. So for example, here, it costs me an extra six bucks to fill up my family sedan. Same thing, a little bit more for a minivan. Uh, to fill up one of those light-duty pickup trucks, just the, you know, the Dodge Rhino 1500 series, is more than $10 extra every time you fill up in the carbon tax. Keep in mind that's not touching any of the other taxes or the GST that's added on top of that. Then when you start getting into the big rigs, those big mm -hmm. cylinders that you put underneath the trucks, right now our current carbon tax here in BC costs about 45 bucks for one of those things. Once this is done, once this carbon tax goes up, it's going to cost those people driving those big rigs $205 per tank. Extra. That's and, and then, our food. Yeah, of course. And then there's the clean fuel tax, which is a yeah. separate tax. That's also coming in. And no, I don't know why no one talks about this, but it barely gets any attention. And that's also pretty costly. It very much is. It's the second carbon tax. And unfortunately, I can give you an example here in BC. Again, we have had that thing, that second carbon tax now for around 10 years or so. So what was interesting is that you might remember last spring when, you know, before COVID, so the spring before that, when the premier here in BC was wondering aloud why we had such high gas prices. Meanwhile, he's jacking up the carbon tax and strangling pipelines, and he's wondering aloud why we have high gas prices. Well, he launched an inquiry to find out what happened with the high gas prices. But the catch was you weren't allowed to examine government behavior. So that meant that if you block a pipeline and jack up taxes, that didn't count. They found a 13 cent per liter markup, weirdly, magically, on BC gas. That was the clean fuel standard. That was the hidden second carbon tax, 13 cents extra. So that same thing is now going to be inflicted on all Canadians. Well, these are guilt taxes. So people, you know, they just don't want to fight against it because they believe truly that this is the thing that will do, you know, the trick. And um, even though it won't, it won't actually make, make us meet emissions uh, or promises to the Paris target um, agreement or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, it won't it won't do anything uh, other than go into, as you say, general revenue. Problem, though, is for a guy like Aaron O'Toole is that he has to have a better plan because you can't now run, even though climate change isn't even polling in the top five as to issues in this country right now. It's such a media-driven narrative that if you don't have a plan, then you're automatically wrong. 
Sure, exactly. And that is going to be a big problem for them, especially from a communication standpoint. If I can take off my CTF hat for a second and just put on my practical hat, if you want to really combat global emissions, the people of India currently, in rural areas especially, use petrified old wood and animal, dried animal dung for a lot Mm. of their heating and cooking needs. The government of India itself has said, we want to transition to natural gas. That one change alone would be a game changer for global emissions. It would far surpass anything that we could do by taxing Sally for driving her kids to soccer in her van in Scarborough or Etobicoke. That one change would be a huge difference. Guess who has lots of natural gas? We Mm -hmm. do. And we produce it in the most, you know, labor, um, egalitarian and environmentally responsible way. So India can buy it from Russia or they can buy it from us. If we export it to them, we're doing a lot better for the planet and we have good jobs. Those are the true biofuels that don't destroy the um, the planet either. Bingo. Um, wow. Yeah, all right. Well, well, we'll see where this goes. Nonetheless, I guess they think this is a winning campaign strategy and um, it, it won't be felt until it's felt. And you'll say, gee, what what happened? When did things get so expensive? But by then it'll be too late. It really will be. I just wanted to warn people yeah. quickly with this rebate thing, Alex. Out here again, the rebate's gone by sixty-five thousand. Your average two-person family income here in BC is eighty-five thousand. So this does nothing for average working people. Not one bit out of here in BC. And I'm worried that the federal one is going to eventually follow suit and evaporate too. Yeah, of course. Uh, all right, Chris, we'll chat again. And I always appreciate your insight. Thank you. Chris Sims breaking all this down so you understand it. And uh, it does matter because it hits you right in the pocketbook. She's with the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation out in BC. Great to uh, have you on this Monday night and further proof we need more dogs in our lives, right? And since we can't seem to get rapid testing in place fast enough, then let's hope we can actually get dogs on board to maybe help us out. And this is just the latest tool that could available to us to help sniff out cases of COVID. And researchers now feel that dogs are actually a very cheap and effective solution that really requires little else than them picking up the right scent. And so researchers in France and Lebanon have actually been working with dogs, the kind of dogs that would be either cadaver dogs or dogs that would sniff out things like cancer or dogs that sniff out bombs and those kinds of things. And they're teaching them to learn the scent of COVID. And then they go sniff out cases. And what they found, I think, is really interesting. Even the least trained dog picks up COVID, the scent of it, 76% of the time. And so researchers here are saying, hmm, this could be a very, very exciting opportunity. Eric Troncy is a professor of pharmacology at the University of Montreal's Faculty of Veterinarian Medicine, and he joins us now. Good to have you. Hi. This sounds like it would be such a great and easy game changer, and it really comes down to money. But how did the research on this thing, how how did you teach dogs to smell COVID? Indeed, you know, when I hear it's easy in research, I'm thinking, oh, no, it's not research. Nothing is easy in research. Um, It came to uh, olfaction because we all know it's the most developed sensorial sense in dogs. And uh, it has been used for many decades now uh, to assist human activities, um, particularly uh, with the modern view of uh, detecting uh, bomb, detecting uh, drug, and also mm-hmm. helping people 
uh, with uh, disaster to find it under here for all this problem. Uh, however, it merged less far than five euros, something like that, that we could use is fantastic ab ability uh, to detect disease. And that's exactly what we call the medical detection done by sniffing dogs. And and so let me jump in here and get, and get the technically. So the, the researchers in this particular case, they worked with six dogs for about a month and they made, they, they somehow trained those dogs using sweat of people that did. did all, yeah. So some people had COVID, some people did not and, and teach the dogs that way. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we're looking to do uh, here in Quebec. And um, the main thing is um Every disease has a specific olfactive signature. And what is wonderful, you, you and I will not be able to, to, to smell it. The dog will. Hmm. And that's the reason we are using the dog. Is that why sometimes when someone's sick, the dog will kind of stay close because they know their owner is uh, not feeling well? Um, it could be. Uh, probably because... Uh, we we have used indeed this aspect of dogs, you know, in zoo therapy, particularly to calm down people, anxious people or children with uh, mental health difficulties. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it's recognized, you know, that the dog can smell you are not well. So literally, he is smelling it. And uh, uh, the, the point is that we have worked in research to, f to find this olfactive signature. And I must say, it's so tough. Uh, we we have spent many hours to look at the spectrogram and look what is the uh, the molecule or in plural involved in this signature, and we are not yet able to detect it. We will need artificial intelligence to do it, but uh, our eyes are are not able to detect it. But the, the nose of the dog will do it, and if I'm looking to COVID and also to cancer, it's hmm. around 100 percent accuracy. Yeah, what you were saying is because uh, the, the dogs that had little training were able to get it 76% of the time, but a dog that's trained to smell for things like cancer, they got it every single time. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the group we are working for the breast cancer, uh, our, mm -hmm. our dogs have found 100% uh, accuracy in uh, sensitivity and 100% in uh, specificity. So uh, being able to, uh, to not detect uh, false positive, which is great because it's so anxious for people. And um, for the COVID, what happened with the result we got Actually, you have what, what I'm calling the champion, you know, the champion uh, mm -hmm. where uh, the dogs will get the 100 percent and uh, the dog will be around 85 to 86 uh, percent. But uh, at this time, what, what I'm questioning, you know, is, OK, uh, how the dog was tested? You know, what were the conditions? Was was is really concentrate, focus in the detection? What, what was the sample? How, how did you manipulate it? So all these points, you know, need to be standardized and on the detail to be sure we are doing the right thing. How long, because obviously there's a need for money to bring it here, but how long would it take to get this program in place? Because I'm thinking, okay, so if you had dogs, you could put them at long-term care facilities, you could put them in schools, hospitals, you could put them anywhere. And the numbers are astonishing. 1,000 dogs uh, in a country would be able to check 400,000 people a day. So you could have them at the airport and they could root out 
threats of COVID. I could not say more than that. It's exactly our, our objective. And it takes usually, what well, I would say, uh, my colleague in Helsinki, uh, when we started the discussion on that, I asked her how long it takes to impregnate your champion. An answer is always the same, seven minutes. In seven really? minutes, the dove, yes, was able to detect it and no and at this time, that the dog is working in the Helsinki airport. This dog is 100% accurate. So uh, it's just wonderful, you know, how you can get it and make it uh, so useful for many applications. All right. And so I think a lot of people are saying, what are we waiting for then? Because we've got the vaccine on its way, but we're going to be living with this thing for at least another year, um, hopefully not that long. But, you know, what are we waiting for? Because this to me sounds amazing. Not to mention much cheaper than rapid tests. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, and indeed, you know, it, it's um, the, the main limitation, the barrier uh, was, I think it's a psychological one. You know, uh, human people, they are, they are trusting more machines than a living system. And uh, at this time, it's, it's a pity, considering it's our best friend, uh, the dog, we, we can be so helpful for us. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, we, we had this discussion, you know, we are all uh, in connection. We are 15 groups in the world uh, working to, uh, to develop uh, canine units to detect COVID. And um, the group is France, who just published uh, last week. Uh, he got uh, funding from the WU organization, uh, where he was not able to get it from its own government. France, the people consider that they have to spend millions of dollars uh, to not say billions in uh, detecting it with uh, PCR on all the antigenic tests. But when they have the, the dog unit close to them, uh, but the WU said, oh, it's very interesting. And particularly what they consider of interest, uh, you know, the, the detection uh, with machine will always be limited to a specific people, you know, yeah. society with money, uh, where this disease is worldwide. And the WU is considering that it could, dogs could be present everywhere. No and kidding. we could train them and bring them in some countries where you will be not able, you know, it's not only the fact to, to buy machine, but you need to maintain the machine. It, it takes yeah. cost and it takes expertise. It's not all countries could be able to do that at, at large scale. So that, that's the main advantage to do it with dogs. Well, yeah, and you could uh, you could solve a lot of problems with adoption at uh, the pound as well. So you'd give a lot of dogs a purpose in life and um, cheap. But I think what the the best part I love about this research is that all the dogs want at the end of it is a toy to play with. They don't need much. They don't need payment. They just want a treat and a pat on the head. Yes, they need human bond, you know, <laughs> with them. Amazing. That's the most important for a dog. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and they love to, to work, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, but that's the way, you know. Uh, and for us, as a, as a researcher, at the point, uh, as veterinary researcher, at the point, I'm particularly focused. You know, I want to take uh, more knowledge about how can can I select these dogs, how can I educate these dogs 
to make them wonderful machines of detection, of medical detection, because the application are one, you know, we are talking about COVID, but it could work with cancer and many cancer for which actually we don't have good prognostic on detection uh, method. We can detect epilepsy, we can detect malaria, yeah. we can detect uh, diabetes, uh, Alzheimer, uh, Parkinson. We have proof of the dog ability to detect that in many publications for that. So that's what? very attractive. No kidding. And uh, Premier Ford, I know you listen to the show. Uh, here's a very, very, very easy and very affordable, uh, very quick answer to the rapid testing question. I think this is fascinating. I'll keep an eye on this. Professor, I thank you so much for your time on this. My pleasure. Take care. Professor uh, Eric Troncy, I think it's amazing. I mean, can imagine how many dogs you could get out there to solve a problem that we have right now. And it'd be a lot cheaper. Boy, oh boy. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. His words, not mine. And why does the Trudeau government attack then those who question the Great Reset, calling it a conspiracy theory? Because it was the Prime Minister himself who talked about seizing the moment. He said it like uh, about a month and a half ago. And his surprise carbon announcement announced on Friday is a big indicator that, yeah, he's doing just that. But if you want proof that the Prime Minister sees this pandemic as an opportunity to build Canada back better, all you need to do is turn to the World Economic Forum and statements made by the United Nations where it's all laid out. And where my friend Lori Goldstein of the Toronto Sun dug up direct quotes and statements that reveal global elites want to use COVID-19 and the global recession to fundamentally reshape society, reduce economic freedom, and transfer wealth from the developed to the developing world. The agenda is a globalist plan to convince people living in democracies in the developed world to accept a lower standard of living. Lori Goldstein is a columnist who you can read in the Toronto Sun. He joins me now. Great to have you. Hi, Alex. Great to be with you. Well, you've gotten a, a lot of blowback uh, on this particular piece. And um, I mean, from people who say you're making this up and it's it's all out in the open. Yeah, well, actually, most of the response has been very positive. Um, yeah, I, I find it kind of amusing, like that you get certain people go, well, you, you know, it becomes a if you don't like something that somebody says that's factually based, then it can't be true. So the first thing was that I, I was trading in conspiracy theories. To which I would say to people, no, in the fourth paragraph, it says it's not a conspiracy theory. It says uh, it's right out in the open. And then they go, well, you're saying it's a global plan for dictatorship. And I go, no, I say in the fifth paragraph, it's not a plan for a dictatorship, but it is a global effort by elites, elites to try and convince people living in the world's democracies that basically we screwed up the planet and we have it too good. And we have to transfer a lot of our wealth uh, to the developing world, and we need higher taxes, uh, carbon tax. Uh, the prime minister um, – so, so in other words, the, the language is precise, and it's the same. I guess the, the money quote that I put in the article was how the UN said this should happen. And recall from the clip you had of what Trudeau said. 
And here's what this is what the United Nations said. It's an environmental uh, program, Emissions Gap 2020, which was put out two days before uh, Trudeau's announcement about the higher carbon tax. It's an annual look at the um, uh, global greenhouse gas emissions around the world and, and assesses every country, including uh, Toronto which or Canada, which it says aren't going to meet or right now are behind all of our targets that Trudeau agreed to in 2015. But here's what it says. This is right from the U.N., own document, major document, put out every year. I read it every year. COVID-19 has provided insight into how rapid lifestyle changes can be brought about by governments. The lockdown period in many countries may be long enough. So listen to what they're saying, Alex. Mm. It might be long. It just might be. We might be so lucky that, and I'll continue, that it is long enough to establish new lasting routines if supported by longer-term measures In planning the recovery from COVID-19, governments have an opportunity to catalyze low-carbon lifestyle changes by disrupting entrenched practices. That's what they said. And as you know in the article, uh, people can read it, the Toronto Sun site, it says a lot of other things, uh, but it quotes directly from the UN's own document. So it it is not made up. And it, I'm not saying there's a conspiracy. They're doing it right out in the open. Uh, you know, the, the, I mean, the prime minister talks about it ad nauseum. The, the, one of the concerns I have, and I'm writing about this tomorrow. One? I, I see many yeah, concerns I, with this. But if you've got one, I'd like to hear it. Well, one of them I have is, to me, um, to me, the heartlessness of what the prime minister is saying. We have a, a disaster that has killed 13,500 um, Canadians up to up to this evening um, through millions of people out of work. It is not an opportunity to reset our society coming out of it. That's not the priority right now. The priority is to get out of it, period. It's to do things that our governments, and this will be the subject of my column tomorrow, it'll be do the things that governments in Canada, federal and provincial, both, provin- both um, conservative and liberal, failed to do out of the SARS crisis in 2003, the pandemic, and the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. They were specifically told by experts in Canada repeatedly, here are the problems, here's why we had problems with these two pandemics. One, you didn't maintain stockpiles of personal protection equipment. Two, your communications between provincial, federal, and municipal governments were bad. You weren't talking to each other the way you know you needed to. Um, uh, three, your hospitals were overcrowded even when there was no pandemic. So, of course, there was no flex of them. They had to empty out the hospitals of non-COVID-19 patients to make room for what they expected would be waves of COVID patients. They said your medical testing wasn't up to scratch. You weren't ready. All those things happened again. And that's why Canada certainly did better than some other countries, um, certainly than the United States. But, but globally, our, our performance was mediocre. That's basically what it was. So to me, the, the, I don't mean to say it in a mental sense, but it is delusional to respond to those failures, and not just by the prime minister, the current prime minister. This includes Stephen Harper's government. It includes past liberal governments and and conservative governments across the country. You made this worse than it had to be. And the example I'll use tomorrow is how Taiwan did things right, which was also hit hard by SARS, but learned from it. That's why this is so bad for us. Do not, given that, talk to me about your latest flavor of the month which is to 
up the carbon tax, which you told us you weren't going to do in the last election. That's not the priority. The priority is to make our, our health system strong enough so that this doesn't happen again. It's to learn from the lessons of COVID-19 so it doesn't happen again, because it sure is shooting. Uh, it's going to happen again. We had well, SARS in 2003. Yeah. We had swine flu in 2009. This is to 2020. We're getting COVID. Um, the reason is, in a large part of the world, people live close to animals, certain animals that transmit the virus to humans. And because of global travel, they go everywhere now. And so it's going to happen again. And so, for the, so given that this is the third time that we've had a, a, an epidemic or a pandemic in, since in the past less than 20 years, and you blew the responses both times. Um, now is the time to get it right. And, and I'm fearful that if we get into this long debate about carbon taxation and climate change, it's not going to happen. Remember the government said right. they were going to have, oh, there'll be all kinds of times for inquiries after this is over and Canadians will have it, blah, blah, blah. They don't want to talk about what they need to do and what they didn't do. He wants to talk about climate change. Well, right. Like, but that, it, and, and, and then you wonder why there's so much distrust of people who are, are wondering what the hell is going on. And are, are the, is the federal government really doing as much as it could to slow the spread? I mean, it's easy to dump it on the provinces. I mean, they've had to do all the heavy lifting. But things like the vaccine or the uh, rapid testing or shutting the borders, that's all federal. And if, if the federal government had actually acted, um, we could have done a lot of things to slow this thing. But you almost at some point think, are they purposely trying to lock us down longer than we have to? to cripple societies and, and take them out so that people are more reliant on government so it, it's easier to carry this out. I mean, if this is the vision of the prime minister, as you've laid out, as the United Nations lays out, you have to wonder whose interest does he have? What I would what I would say there is that I don't think this is all a deliberate strategy. I don't think that they're that organized. But what I do think a whole bunch of circumstances have come to push yeah. the prime minister in the way he wants to go anyway. The opportunity believes, provided itself. Yeah. He believes in big government. Mm -hmm. he, be, he doesn't really concern himself with um, uh, deficits. Remember, he told us before the mm -hmm. pandemic hit, by, by last fiscal year, we were supposed to have a $1 billion surplus, right? Mm -hmm. Before the pandemic hit, it was a $28.8 billion deficit. But what's happening is that it's, I don't think it, it, it's a conscious thing, but given what he wants to do, big government, nanny state, uh, far, I mean, pharmacare and all that stuff, uh, mm -hmm. national daycare. Um, this is pushing him in that direction because in the parliament, who does he have to satisfy? He has to satisfy the NDP uh, yeah. to survive and in they, the minority and government. They'll jump right on. Yeah. And the NDP wants to go even further than he does. So to me, it's a whole bunch of circumstances, the pandemic, um, uh, the makeup of the parliament, the fact that he has to appeal to the NDP to get his agenda through that are pushing it where he wants to go, which is to big government, to heck with the deficits, um, um, you know, and, 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 you know, not just this stuff, but guaranteed, guaranteed annual income. They talked mm -hmm. about, they talked about pharmacare. They talked about, um, national daycare, which the liberals have, have proposed so many times and never done it. It's, it's absurd, but it, this is where he wants to be. He's comfortable in this venue, right? This is what he wants. And this is where all the forces are pushing him. And so I don't, th I don't think it's a plot. I don't think it's a plan. But I, I think it's for, for people like, I'd say, us and Canadians who worry about paying this stuff off and not mortgaging the future for our children, it's concerning. Because all the push is away from, to me, fiscal responsibility. Yeah. You'll remember that 
Uh, Yves Giraud, the parliamentary budget officer, he was complaining about the lack of transparency from Christian Freeland before um, she did that economic statement. Um, Then when it happened, he said, you're putting aside $100 billion for three years, and you're not saying what you're going to spend it on. And he said, I've never seen anything like that. And he said, I guess right now the phone must be ringing off her hook from lobbyists because you said there's $100 billion there that's going to go somewhere, right? And, and so, again, it, it, it's, it's just like this isn't transparency. This isn't openness. I did a column earlier about every government in Canada except the federal government was able to do a budget in 2020, in this year. 2020. Some did it early on. Uh, Ontario didn't do it till November, but everybody got in a budget because they all realized, yeah, you know, we really have to tell people where we're spending this money. The next time there will be a federal budget in um, in the federal government will be in the spring, we're told, of 2021, two years after the last budget, which was in March 2019, which was before the last election, when Bill Morneau was the finance minister. How is it possible that in the greatest economic recession and public health emergencies, I think that most of us have seen in our lifetimes, um, there hasn't been, there's going to be a budget for two years? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense, but they get away with it, Lori. And so, you know, until they're called on it, they won't have to answer. Um, I'm, I'm up against the clock, but of sure. course, we'll uh, watch for your next article. Thank you for writing it. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks for coming on. That is uh, Laurie Goldstein. You can read his uh, next chapter of this in tomorrow's Toronto Sun. And look, the more money we're spending on like $15 billion on climate change going over to the UN and the Paris climate crap, that's money that we're not spending on health care. You can join us live Monday through Friday starting sharp at 6.30. I'm Alex Pearson on Point and this is Global News Radio.